And let's pray, shall we, as we come to this marathon. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, we pray to you that as we study your word this morning, you would open our eyes to, to all that you want us to discover and that you may challenge us afresh um, in what you want us to do and how you want to work through our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, the genealogy of Jesus, not the thing, the sort of thing we read every, every day, is it? Or, or maybe, or maybe you do. Um, but there, if you were counting, which I'm sure many of you were, there are actually 42 um, individual people. So I reckon five minutes for each one, we should be able to get through it um, by sort of early tea time. So I hope you're all right for that. Um, but don't panic, I'm going to just highlight a few, a few of these people. I wonder, imagine going into a bookshop like Waterstones or any other bookshops, of course there are many, um, taking off a book off the bookshelf and they're being confronted with this great list of names and names and names. It's a really big turn-off, isn't it? Who would write a book like that um, if they were not, not going to try and off-put their, their audience? But on the other hand, genealogy is something that has actually become very, very popular, hasn't it, in, in, recent, um, in recent years. And some of you here may well have tracked back or traced your, your ancestors going back many, many years, discovering that you're one of Bodicea, oh, sorry, Bodica's um, children, maybe. Um, but it's quite interesting, isn't it? And you may have well watched that programme, Who Do You Think um, You Are?, where celebrities and go back through all the various documents and discover some of the interesting, if not scoundrous, um, forebears um, that uh, were part of their, of their family. So maybe you've done that yourself. And it's sometimes quite helpful that you discover things about your family and you think, ah, that explains that. Uh, my family on my uh, mother's side goes back to the Guernsey and Channel Islands and probably way back into history of of uh, pirates um, um, raiding ships in the channel. And it might explain my interest in, in parrots and uh, <coughs> a strange laugh that I get sometimes. <laughs> anyway, um, enough of that. Um, but I'm sure these things do reveal all sorts of th- things in our genes. It's all down to my genes, we may well say. Um, but in, um, in some societies, um, going back and, and, and proving your ancestry um, can sometimes be just as, as important as we perhaps today would produce a very carefully written CV highlighting all our, all our good points. But so having sort of looked right with, with some surprise at the way that Matthew begins um, his, his gospel, it was, wasn't actually that surprising at all for, for Jewish people, particularly at that time. Because often, the way you wanted to big somebody up or to introduce somebody was, in fact, to go back into their, into their history. And we're very aware that uh, Matthew was, was writing to a largely, if not exclusively, Jewish audience. So all these things on genealogy, genealogy, however you pronounce it, was really important. And of course, one of the 
very key things that the Jewish, the Jewish people believed was that the Messiah would be a descendant of King, of King David. And so Matthew is very keen to explain and expound that genealogy and that takes Jesus right back to King David and even beyond to Abraham. And as we see, um, the, the genealogy is genealogy is broken into three neat sections of 14 generations. And the first one, as you can see, um, runs from um, verses 2 to 6. I think it's come, it is up on the screen there, isn't it? Um, so it begins with Abraham, and then it goes on to the next section, which is um, followed by, um, well, which David is the, is the star, if you like, from verses 6 to 11. And then finally, the last section from verses 12 to 17 is the period after the exile. <clears throat> from, if you like, um, yes, the exile up to the birth of Jesus. And so Matthew dis d demonstrates in all these ar array of names um, that Jesus is indeed um, a true son of Israel and from an honourable line of Israelites. He is indeed the son of Abraham and the son of David. He has, if you like, all the credentials of the promised Messiah. Before we look at some of these in a little bit more detail, there's one rather key word right at the beginning of this section of, of, uh, of Matthew, where it speaks about the record of, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we may just overlook that, but actually the Greek word for the record of the genealogy, sorry, um, is actually Genesis. In other words, the Greek translation of that first verse is the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Christ. And the Jewish people had always understood from early earliest times that God had promised to renew all creation and bring on us a, a new age, the age, um, the Messianic, if you like, the Messianic age. And so Matthew's use of the word Genesis, which we can't see in the English version, but it signals to the, the Jewish audience that a new creation story was about to unfold and that was going to be headed with the birth of Jesus. And as we know, as we go through Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is so keen, so committed to bring out all the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the Messiah and especially to Jesus. So often we have the words, and this occurred to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophets. Well, we need to look at this list, don't we? But don't panic, <clears throat> it's not all 42. Um, and I think a lot of you, as we, were reading th as we were reading through that list, might be thinking, oh, for goodness sake, let's just get on to the main gospel. Come on, I mean, you know... It's really unimportant. But there are some real gems, I hope, to uh, reveal to you as we go through the, the genealogy. And I think one of the things, perhaps one of the key things here, is Matthew's inclusion of some women in the genealogy. Now, in those times, um, your genealogy would, would, would 
take you all back to your ancestors. But they wouldn't include any women because women had no real importance. They had no legal rights. Uh, they often re were regarded as a sort of possession of their husband um, or their father. Indeed, um, the morning prayer at that time, um, the Jew, the Jewish man, would, would thank God and uh, say, thank you, God, that you haven't made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Isn't that gruesome? But here we have this list of 42 characters, and we have five women hopelessly outnumbered in this great array of people. So why did, why did Matthew choose these particular people, particularly when we find that they have rather a questionable background? And the first one we come to, if you look at verse, oh yes, verse three is up there. We come to um, a lady called Tamar, who I must admit, I didn't know, really know anything about. She's mentioned in Genesis 38 and was a widow, but she decided to disguise herself and pretended to be a prostitute so she could sleep with Judah, her father-in-law. And the result was the birth of twins, Perez and Zerah. And you think, why on earth did Matthew want to include her? My goodness me, um, <clears throat> not exactly the highest pedigree that you would give. And yet, this, this, this person, this woman, Tamar, was key in the, in the development and the, um, the development of the way um, God was using um, this line of people to bring eventually his, his, um, his son, Jesus. We then come to verse 5 to um, the woman, second woman on our list, that is Rahab. And uh, was she related to salmon? I'm, I'd love to have met salmon. Um, I'm sure he was a keen fisherman. Anyway, um, <clears throat> we read a lot about Rahab in Joshua 2. And again, she has rather a shady background. Um, Rahab was a prostitute and lived in Jericho. And she was the one who housed or, or protected um, two spies that the Israelites had sent out to spy the, the, the promised land, and especially um, Jericho, because they wanted to overthrow it. What an amazing woman this was. And she was somebody, as we see in, in Joshua 2, who was clearly a woman of, of faith. She knew and recognised that God was going to... Um, take over this land that these people were in fact chosen. And uh, so she was willing to risk her life and her family's life in protecting um, these, these spies. And uh, the lovely little detail in this story, which actually Matthew doesn't bring out, but I'm embroidering here a little bit, was that, um, yes, her family and herself, she was um, guaranteed protection by putting a scarlet cord in the window of her home, so that when the marauding Israelites came, they wouldn't kill her. And it's that, just that little thread of the, the crimson thread, which has got so many signs in these genealogies of God's um, workings. And uh, I wonder whether that, that particular sign, to some of the readers might, as they you know, thought about Rahab, thought, yes, my goodness, do you remember back in the Passover when we had to make, when we used to, have, used to put blood on the, on the doorposts and the lintel so that the angel of the Lord would pass over and not, um, 
kill us as he was all the first, the firstborn of the Egyptian people. That, that, that red, that line of, of blood that runs through in many ways the Old Testament was a sign of how Jesus was going to come and through his blood would save each one of us from the punishment we deserved. But the link goes on. It's Rahab's son, Boaz, that links us to the next woman in this genealogy, and that is Ruth. So we're in verse, yes, we are still in verse 5. And Ruth, as you know, has a whole book devoted to her in the Old Testament. But again, like Rahab, Ruth doesn't seem to be a particularly good candidate for being an ancestor of Jesus. She was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. And if you look at um, <clears throat> excuse me, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, it says that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter into the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation, because of how they treated the people of Israel when they were um, escaping from, um, from Egypt. So Ruth belonged to an alien and hated people. And yet, God uses her. And the story is, obviously, is lovely, and we haven't got time to go through it now, but it just shows that way that Ruth and her widowed Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, had come, if you like, back home to Bethlehem from Moab. And there they were in a desperate situation with no way of being supported financially. But it is the amazing intervention of Boaz, who turns out to be a distant relative who turns out indeed to be the nearest kinsman. And it's Boaz who redeems her, who takes Ruth to be his wife, uh, and, uh, and thereby saving her and her mother-in-law certain poverty and disgrace. And again, it's a lovely picture of God's grace, so undeserved that Boaz takes Ruth to be his wife. And from that, um, that marriage comes Jesse, who would be the father of King David. All these little, um, if you like, all these threads coming together, even though these threads were from rather um, questionable sources. And so we see in the lives of Rahab and Ruth, God's amazing grace, how a prostitute and despised foreigner could be grafted into, into God's family and play such an important role in the plan of salvation. We come to our next um, contender, um, who's not even given a name. She's just known as Uriah's wife. This is in verse 6. We know her better as Bathsheba. And you may recall from the story that uh, this was the woman who David, King David, seduced while she was still married to Uriah, a Hittite. And this gross act of adultery and abuse of his power was, um, and then, of course, as we know, arranged the murder of poor um, Uriah as he was right on the battlefront and uh, he was put in right in the most dangerous part and was killed. So we have this most despicable, disgraceful act of a king that he should do such a most awful thing. Uh, and yet... And yet, God still works through him. His plan is not thwarted. From this seeming mass, 
comes the Messiah, the son of David. And then finally, we come to the end of the genealogy. We come to Mary. And once again, God acts in a surprising way. He chooses a young virgin to be the mother of his son, Jesus. A woman of no significance, of no importance in society, she becomes pregnant, not through her fiancé, Joseph, but through the Holy Spirit. And that always left uh, a question mark over Jesus' origins. Um, who was his father? Isn't that amazing? Why does God seem to use these very questionable people sometimes, not deserving people, in his, in his work? And so we see in this amazing genealogy, the amazing um, way that God is working among his people. And we see through that too, the way that barriers are being broken down, are being eroded um, by God's action amongst humankind. We see the barrier between Jew and Gentile broken down. We have Rahab, the woman of Jericho, Ruth, the woman of Moab, Bathsheba, the wife of a foreigner. They find their place in Jesus' genealogy. As Paul reminds us in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Here at the very beginning of the Gospel, Matthew demonstrates the, the universalism of the Gospel. It's there for everyone. No racial group. No, no group at all is omitted from his love. The barriers between male and female are broken down too. And as we've seen in the genealogy, it's quite unique um, at that time for a genealogy to include any women. That discrimination, if you like, goes with the gospel of Jesus. Men and women stand equally before God and equally um, to be used by him for his purposes. And then finally, the barrier between saint and sinner is broken down. Somehow, God can use even the most unlikely people for his purposes. Even those who've sinned greatly, who've messed up. As Jesus says, I'm not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. There is this overwhelming love that God has for, for all and that his desire is for each to know his love. And so here we have, right, even right at the beginning of this gospel, a hint of the all-embracing width of the love of God. His amazing grace in finding his servants from amongst those whom one would normally give second thought to. Isn't that amazing that each one of us, with all our different backgrounds, are loved by God and he can use each one of us, no matter what mistakes we might have made, what muck-ups we might have done, God loves us and wants to use us. Amen. Let us stand, shall we? Just a moment to just reflect on that genealogy. 
not to be lost, I hope, with all the names. But I wonder what's touched our heart as we were looking at God's word and listening to God's word. Maybe we see that our vision of God is just too narrow and limited. Are there some groups of people in society that we just cannot possibly imagine God using in his mission to save humankind? Maybe our love is limited to those who we think are suitable in God's eyes. Maybe we think we're one of the unsuitable ones. How can God possibly love me? How can God possibly use me? I don't have the right background. I've made some bad decisions in the past and made a mess of my life and others. Can God possibly love me? Can he possibly use me? So we come to the Lord and ask his forgiveness for our narrow view of his of his kingdom, of who he wants to use. And we come to the, to the Lord with our, the mess in our lives and, know, and a knowledge that God wants to use us in spite of the mess we may have made. Amen.